All right. There's kind of that lull. So let's go ahead and everybody get back to their seat and we'll get started. Um, Dan is gone this week, as many of you all know. Um, Dan is the keynote speaker at a youth conference that they are having in Nashville. And uh, while we miss Dan, while he's gone, we're, we're grateful that we can share our pastor um, to go speak and preach and, uh, and, and teach to a group of teenagers. And our hope is that the same passion and, and enthusiasm that Dan has for the gospel and for uh, the grace of Jesus Christ and its transformative power uh, will be transferred to those young people and that they will go back to their homes, their schools, and their churches and that there will be a difference there. And so that they'll go back and be able to spread that same passion uh, that Dan has. And so if you think about it, pray for him. Uh, I think today is his last day of speaking, but pray for the fruit of his ministry to, to still be effective. And what we, what we started last week uh, as we concluded the book of Ruth, and we really started into another one, is a series that we're calling The Mothers of Jesus. And this isn't uh, a title or a series that, that's original to us. Uh, it's one that's uh, done uh, often throughout the country, uh, and it's based on the women that are listed in Matthew 1, in the genealogy of Christ. And there's five women listed there, and we're going to look at all of them over the next few weeks. Obviously, we, we've looked at Ruth. We spent eight weeks looking at Ruth. Uh, and we're going to turn back uh, a generation, and we're going to look at Rahab this morning. And we're going to see why these women are listed and this family tree of Jesus. And so we had Thanksgiving, oh, about a week and a half ago, and we've got Christmas coming up, and people have Christmas parties and, and family get-togethers. Uh, I was talking to a guy, and he had 30 people at his house, and uh, that just made me almost cringe to think of that many people being, being around and being stuck with them for, for that long. And uh, I saw a study um, that was interesting, what was most interesting, it was it was studied, sponsored by Motel 6. And you're not used to Motel 6 uh, sponsoring studies. But what they were looking at was what they considered and polling people on what was the ideal amount of time to spend with families uh, for the holidays. And it got very specific in their answer. And the answer for the ideal amount of time before people kind of started losing it was three hours and 54 minutes. Um, three hours and 54 minutes. And um, you think about, you know, being in a, in a crowded room with people and all this kind of stuff, that's probably about right. Um, there are about 20,000 participants in that. Uh, another thing I thought was interesting was 25% of people uh, admitted to finding a place in the house or location that they were in uh, to go and hide for a period of time from everybody, just so they could take some time and and get their bearings and, and kind of get their, their calm uh, back. But nearly all of them in the study, over 95%, said they wouldn't miss um, being with their families for the holidays. And it doesn't really seem like the holidays if, if their family isn't involved. And, and families and in, in holidays have, have kind of gotten a little messy. I've talked to people who had to go to six or seven different different families and and they kind of say well I've, I've got a messy family and, and when you read Matthew 1 um, the family tree of Jesus and the genealogy is one that I would consider it's kind of messy um, there's there's some people there that you really wouldn't expect to be 
to be listed in the genealogy if you're trying to show the, the genealogy of, of a savior and a king. But I think it's, it shows a lot. And that's the reason we're going to look at, at these women. And so we're going to start in Matthew 1. Well, we're going to be flipping around a little bit, which is, and look at some longer portions of Scripture, which is why there's nothing listed in the bulletin. Uh, but we're going to start with Matthew 1, 1 through 6, which includes four out of the five of these women. And so Matthew 1 starts, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And, and Matthew isn't really holding any punches when he, when he starts here. He's, he's stating exactly what he's going to write about. The book of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And he's basically going to stay, and he's going to go through, this is kind of his thesis for his whole book, is this man named Jesus is the rightful heir of the Davidic throne. He's king. He's the one that's been promised. He's the one that started with Abraham, that the covenant of this land and this seed and this blessing is all going to be through the fulfillment of Jesus Christ. And so he starts right there telling us exactly what he's going to do. And then he starts in the genealogy in verse 2. And it says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There's our first woman. Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. There's number two. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. Number three. Obed the father of Jesse. And Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And that's number four. Obviously, number five is when we get to the end of that, and it's going to be Mary. And, and, and you look at this and you say, if we go back to Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other. One of these things doesn't belong. And so when you see a break in the pattern, you ask yourself, why is there a break in the pattern? Because in a patriarchal society in, in the time of the Israelites, your mother really didn't matter as far as inheritance and land and, and all the things that were coming to you. And most of the genealogies don't list women for that reason. Now, today, that's a little bit foreign to us because people want to know who your mom and your dad is. But back in that time, in that society, who your dad was was really all that mattered as far as the family tree. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, there's five women listed, four of them in these first six verses, and they're listed there for a reason. And why are they listed? And so we spent eight weeks looking at Ruth and her story and how God worked in her life. And so we're not going to go back to that, but we are going to turn the clock back one generation and look at Rahab. Now, I think most of us are familiar with Rahab, but for those of you who aren't, we'll do just a quick catch-up of the history. Uh, Israel had been in Egypt. They were led out of Egypt after the plagues. Uh, they crossed the Red Sea. They were in the wilderness. And they were promised the promised land, but they started grumbling and complaining, saying, you brought us out here to the wilderness to die. We want to go back to Egypt. We'd rather be slaves again. And so God punished them because of their grumbling and complaining and said, all right, for 40 years, I'm going to make you walk around in the wilderness. And now we've finally gotten to the generation where it's time to go in and take the promised land. And we're going to read all of Joshua 2, which is where we get the story of Ruth. And it's 25 verses, and it's going to seem a little long to read because our attention spans for reading are, are not as long as they used to be. But I think it's important, one, to get the story of Rahab, to see her and her background and the situations that happen. 
But one of the commentators that I was reading is, I was studying for this, said that this is one of the longest uninterrupted statements by a woman in a biblical narrative. Therefore, I think it's worth that we look at it, that we listen to it, and that we see uh, what she said. And I would encourage you as we go through this, especially when she's speaking, that you would look at this strong declaration of faith that she makes. And I would say it's one of the strongest declarations of faith that you read anywhere in the Old or New Testament. So if you have your Bibles, either electronically or paper or whatever, if you want to turn to Joshua 2 and follow along. And we'll start there in first one, verse 1. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go, view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and came into the house of a prostitute, whose name was Rahab, and they lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. Then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who entered your house, for they have come to search out all the land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And the gate was about to be closed at dark. The men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hid them with stalks of flax that she had laid in order on the roof. So the men pursued after them on the way to the Jordan as far as the fords, and the gate was shut as soon as the pursuers had gone out. Before the men lay down, she came up to the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you will also deal kindly with my father's house, and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. Then she let them down by a rope through the window, for her house was built into the city wall, so that she lived in the wall. And she said to them, Go into the hills, or the pursuers will encounter you, and hide there three days until the pursuers have returned. Then afterward you may go your way. The men said to her, We will be guiltless with respect to this oath of yours that you made us swear. Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie the scarlet cord in the window, through which when you look down, you shall gather into your house, your father and your mother, your brothers and all your father's household. Then if anyone goes out of the doors of your house into the street, his blood shall be on his own head, and we shall be guiltless. But if a hand is laid on anyone who is with you in the house, his blood shall be on our head. But if you tell this business of ours, then we shall be guiltless with respect to your oath that you have made us swear. And she said, According to your words, so be it. Then she sent them away, and they departed. And she tied the scarlet cord in the window. They departed and went to the hills, and remained there three days until the pursuers returned. And the pursuers searched all along the way and found nothing. Then the two men returned. They came down from the hills and passed over and came to Joshua the son of Nun. And they told him all that happened to them. And they said to Joshua, Truly the Lord has given all the land into our hands, and also all the inhabitants of the land melt away because of us. And so after this, uh, they, they get their battle plan uh, together. 
And so basically God tells them, you're going to take the Ark of the Covenant, and they're going to walk out with the leaders of the 12 tribes, and the Jordan River is going to part right in front of you, just as it did in the Red Sea. And the Ark of the Covenant is going to stay in the middle uh, of this river, and the people are going to walk through on dry ground. And after everybody had passed over, uh, they had the 12 leaders of the tribe of Israel build a memorial with 12 stones in the middle of the river. And as soon as the Ark of the Covenant had passed through, then the waters came back together. Now, this is the second time that a body of water had parted uh, for Israel so that they could cross through instead of going around something. And most of us know uh, the battle plan of Jericho. And unfortunately, as, as I was putting this together, all these songs from children's church kept coming into my mind about Joshua fighting the battle of Jericho and 12 men went to spy on Canaan and all that kind of stuff. And it's just been this earworm that I can't get rid of. And hopefully people have written better songs uh, now for kids than what they did when I was growing up in the 80s, but I, I doubt it. And so the battle plan for Jericho is one that didn't quite make sense to anybody. And so for six days, they were supposed to march around the city one time and then go back to their camp. And on the seventh day, they were supposed to march around seven times. And at the end of marching around the city seven times, they were supposed to yell and scream and blow the trumpets and the walls would come tumbling down. And you can think of this, you know, from the Israel, Israelites perspective of this is kind of a weird battle plan. I mean, they weren't quite exactly told what was going on. And so they're walking around and they're thinking, okay, when is this going to happen? When are we going to start fighting? And you look at this from Rahab's point of view, and we read earlier that when the men left, she put the scarlet cord out the window right at that time. So she has no idea what's going on. These men, when they left, they didn't know the battle plan. They didn't know to tell her, okay, seven days we're going to do this, and this is happening. But Rahab still has faith because the scarlet cord is hanging out the window from the time that they left. And who knows how quickly she gathered her, her, all of her brothers and sisters to hide in the middle, to hide in their house. So you wonder what she's thinking during this time. Well, we know that the walls did come down and they took the city of Jericho. And for a few verses in Joshua 6, in verse 22 it says, But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought out all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it, only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers from whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And, and that's the, the beginning part of the story of Rahab that catches us, up, catches us up to what I want to look at in her life. And I think there's three things that as I read the story and looked at her place in the genealogy and other places she's mentioned in Scripture, I think there are three things um, that we can learn from the lesson of Rahab and how this relates to God and the ultimate incarnation of Christ. And the first one of those is there's no one beyond the reach of God's love. There's no one beyond the reach of God's love. And so we look at this and we say, here's a woman living in Jericho. Uh, she's a Canaanite, so she's a pagan. She doesn't know Jehovah. She doesn't know Yahweh. And not only that, she's, she's a prostitute. 
And, and we look at this and we say, wow, isn't that amazing that the grace and mercy and love of Yahweh found this woman? And, and, it, and it is. And we as a church, we love great testimonies of this. We love seeing people who were, you know, imprisoned, that might have been murderers, that were drug dealers and so forth, people of ill repute, and, and how they came to Christ and how God broke through that. But what we often lose sight of is it takes the same grace, the same love, the same mercy of God to save someone who was a religious person from their entire life, from the time that they were born, if you grew up in church. And it doesn't matter whether you were good or bad in your past. And the most sinful person needs just as much grace as the most religious person. And the way in which we view ourselves prior to salvation and the magnitude of our sin determines the magnitude of the Savior that we need. So if we look, make little of our sin before Christ, we cheapen grace and we have a low view of our Savior. Now, we're not going to get into the theological discussion of inherited sin, imputed sin, and impersonal, impersonal sin, but we all know that we're sinners, We all know that we've done things that we shouldn't have done, and we know that there's something wrong with the world, that sin pervades the world, and that sin right now is really really reigning in the world. And so I I would make this premise to you is that we look at Rahab as a trophy of God's grace, but all of us, no matter our past, we're all Rahabs. Ephesians 2, and you'll listen to the metaphors that are used here of dead and alive. It says, And you were dead and trespasses and sins. And then skipping down a few verses, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And I think we would all agree with the statement that dead is dead. There aren't really degrees of deadness unless you watch The Princess Bride and Billy Crystal as Miracle Max makes the statement there is a big difference between mostly dead and all dead. Turns out your friend here is only mostly dead. And, and, and it's a comical scene, and it's, it's funny in that part of the movie, but it, it's not true spiritually. We're all dead spiritually, and some realize their need more than others, but we all need it. And that's why when you see Jesus talking to religious leaders in, in his day, it's harder for a religious person oftentimes to realize their sin and to realize their need of salvation through Christ than it is someone who looks at their life and says, Man, I've wasted my life. Look at everything that I've done in my life that's wrong. I need a Savior. But religious people oftentimes have a harder time seeing that than others. And we all know that everything is broken around us. And Rahab saw that. Rahab saw that in Jericho. She saw that there was something different about the Israelites as they were coming. And what's interesting is in James chapter 2 and verse 23, Rahab's faith is compared to that of Abraham's. And in verse 23, and and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. Now, that, that verse, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, is really one of the most pivotal statements in all of Scripture. It is when it's given in Genesis. It is when Paul uses this as a, as a foundation for the primacy of faith in Galatians and Romans when he's writing this. And Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, this was said to Abraham 40, 400 years before the law was given. And so we often think, okay, the means of salvation in the Old Testament was, was through, through keeping the law and doing the right things. But it's never been that. It's always been about faith and looking forward to that which was going to come. The law was given for blessings in the land and keeping the covenant relationship with God. But it's always been about faith and it will always be about faith. And if we read in James 2.25... And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified. And so the father of the Hebrew faith, Abraham, is compared to the same faith that Rahab had. And that's just a remarkable comparison to take Abraham and compare that to Rahab. So faith is the source. Faith is the key. And it will always be about faith. There's no cosmic scale of right or wrong in what we do and because nothing would ever measure out. It would be like taking a mouse on one end of a balance beam and trying to, or a, a teeter-totter and trying to put an elephant on the other end. It will never balance out. It will always go in the scale of the elephant. And so what I would say is God's salvation of Rahab was no more miraculous than in his saving of each one of us. The same God that worked miraculously to save Rahab is the same God that miraculously worked to save each one of us. And so what the questions I would ask is, one, do you show this in your life? One, do you show this to others? Do you show that there's a difference and that there's an appreciation and that there's a, a reverence for the grace of God that saved you? Because there should be something different in the way you live as a child of God, as someone who's been saved by grace through faith in Christ, there should be something different about the way we talk, about the way we act, about the way we live, than someone who isn't. And that's what Rahab saw. She saw that there was something different, and she believed and had the faith to believe and was redeemed by God. The second thing I would say is don't give up on anyone. You may have been praying for someone for years and years. You may have tried to talk to them about Christ. You may have tried to witness to them over and over again. But don't give up on that person because there's no one beyond the reach of God's love. And if anyone here hasn't experienced the redemption and the new birth and life through Christ, it's the greatest thing that you could do because it really is what Christmas is about. It's about the coming of the Savior of the world who took on a flesh to come to us to give us something new. He's come to give us new life. To take what was broken in all of us and bring us back to life in Him. So there's no one beyond the reach of God's love. The second thing is there's nothing in your past that cannot be redeemed. And so we often refer to as Rahab the harlot, Rahab the prostitute. But Rahab became a full participant in the covenant of God with the Israelites. God's love and mercy drew this pagan harlot to himself, but her past was wiped clean. It was erased, and it was forgiven. It would still be a great story uh, of what she did in protecting and, and saving these spies, even if it ended right there and we knew that she lived with the Israelites. 
But the story goes on, and it actually shows God's mercy and grace even more because we know what happened later. In 1 Chronicles 2.11, we see that she was married to one of the tribal leaders of Judah. And in Hebrew, she's used as a, as, a, as a trophy and a triumph of faith and redemption. And she's listed with all the great heroes in the faith of what we often call as the Hall of Faith. And in Hebrews 11.31, it says, By faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now, we'll go from about 1400 B.C. to 2019 and bring this back to us. And there's a lot of us here that have things in our life that we wish we could go back. We would erase it. We would undo it. We would like to forget it and mark that out. But the truth of the matter is, for those of us who have been saved, God's already done that. It's already erased. It's already forgiven. It's already been cleansed. And for us to live in that is taking something that we weren't meant to live, keeping that inside of ourselves. If we take the working premise again that we are all Rahabs, then our past can be redeemed and be used for something remarkable too, just like Rahab. 2 Corinthians 5.17, a very familiar passage, says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. The old has passed away, the new has come. And that phrase, in Christ, is a very significant thing and a very basis of a lot of New Testament teaching and theology about who we are and about, who our, about what our identity is in Christ. And Paul uses the phrase, or something very similar, in Christ 164 times in his letter. So it's something that Paul wants to drive home. And John Stott, one of the great writers and, and theologians of just a little bit before our age, wrote this, to be in Christ is to find personal fulfillment, to enjoy brotherly unity, and to experience a radical transformation. Only then can we become the world's salt and light, sharing the good news with others, making an impact on society, and above everything else, seeking to bring honor and glory to his wonderful name. And if we break down those three things that he said, personal fulfillment, brotherly unity, and radical transformation, we see radical transformation in the fact that you are not who you were. There's no need for guilt and shame because of who you were before Christ. Personal fulfillment, the feelings of inadequacy are the lies that Satan wants us to believe about ourselves, that we're not good enough, that we haven't done enough to earn favor with God, when really we don't need to earn favor with God. We already have all the favor with God that we need through our relationship and through redemption through Christ. And brotherly unity, I think this is, this is one of the most amazing things to think. In Romans 8.29, For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And, and if we take this and read it literally, which we should, then that means that Jesus Christ is our elder brother. He was the first among many brothers and sisters. He's the preeminent one. And we look at Rahab, and Rahab is in the family of tree, tree leading to Christ and its ultimate fulfillment. But we're also part of that tree through Jesus Christ. And so what I'd say is let go of whatever it is that's weighing you down. Whatever is making you feel less than loved by God. If we've been saved by grace through faith in Christ, then we are that. We're in Christ. 
We're not defined by our sin. We have a new identity and a new life in Christ. That nothing, whether seen or unseen in this world, will ever be able to separate us. And so the first point, that there's no one beyond the reach of God's love, is about viewing the depth of our sin prior to, his, prior to salvation and the grace and the power of redemption in Christ. And this point is more about viewing the forgiveness, cleansing, and absence of our sin after being in Christ. And we've been part of a radical transformation and given a new identity where we're in Christ. Final point is there is no time or place in which God cannot work. And as I was thinking, we're, our society really isn't so different from Jericho. Jericho was a walled city. They had armies. They had a powerful king. They had big walls, which I'm sure they thought would protect them. And there's not really a one-to-one correlation, and it may be stretching it a little bit to say, we're like Jericho. But they were trusting in everything that they could see. And watching the news this week, you can see that our country and our world is just in absolute chaos. We don't have literal physical walls surrounding each one of us, but we feel a lot of the figurative walls and the, and the things that we trust in, the things that, that we look to for security. Those things all around us are crumbling. We can't trust in the institutions and, and the things that we always look to for hope and for comfort. And most sociologists or anthropologists would, would say that we're one of the most worried and anxious societies of all time. When you walk around and you see the decorations up for Christmas now, we see the traditional words that get printed on coffee cups or get put on a store display or people put on shelves. And they're words like peace and joy and love and hope. But you look at them and you compare that with what's on the news and what you see in the newspaper, it seems really hollow and meaningless because the two don't correlate at all. And you really don't feel that when you look at that. You're like, oh, that's, that's a nice Christmas display, but there's no hope. There's no peace. Where's the joy around any of this? And, and you hear Christmas carols, and they seem like they're empty and devoid of meaning. And people are singing these words without knowing what they mean. Or we, we come past them and we hear them, we're like, oh, cool, I know that song, great. But we've lost what, what the meaning of those is. And you look at that, and you often look and say, all right, God, where are you in all this? And, and America is, is well past being a Christian nation. I would say we're probably in a post-Christian nation at this point. We're beyond a post-Christian nation. And, and unfortunately, what we find ourselves doing in today's age is we're looking more towards politics. And we're looking more towards other things for that sense of security and for the hope and for the meaning in what we want in our lives. We're looking for other things to quote-unquote save us. And, and as we talked about earlier, we use the Advent. And you see the promise building and building as we read through Matthew 1. And the promise of something great is there. And we heard what an Old Testament passage read that, that promised the Messiah, that promised the King, that promised the kingdom would come. And then Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ finally arrived, the long-awaited Savior. And, and the world, at the time, largely didn't recognize that. But we're gathered here today because we do recognize that. We do recognize that we have the fulfillment of the Messiah and the Savior in Christ. 
But what I would say is the first advent is completed. Christ has come the first time. But I would say that the second advent is going to be even greater when Christ comes back in the same manner in which he left, where he's going to take everything that's wrong with this world and make it right again. And we're in this stage of already and not yet with the kingdom of Christ. Christ inaugurated the kingdom at his first coming, a kingdom that he clearly said is is not of this earth, a kingdom that's not of this world, a kingdom that we can't see, but we're still awaiting the fulfillment of that. And when Christ comes back, it's going to be a kingdom that's going to trample everything, every kingdom, every nation that, that was, that is, or will be. And we have that hope and that promise for the future. And we wrestle in churches and we debate about, okay, in America, what, what should we do? And I read a book about two years ago when it came out. It was called The Benedict Option. And it suggested that what Christians should do in Western society is that we should just completely withdraw from society. We should follow the example of the Benedictine order where we should take our Western values and Western civilization and knowledge of God and we should just withdraw from society completely, establish our own society, and, and let the world kind of collapse around itself. And there are some people who think, all right, well, what we need to do is we should just more militantly fight. We need to get out, and we just need to push harder and harder against the things of the world. And the thing of it is, is I don't really care what your politics are here in church. But what I do care is where your trust is. I care that it's not in Washington, D.C., or any other part of civilization or society. But I do care that your trust is in a sovereign God who's working everything together for good. And God can work through our weaknesses and the seemingly insurmountable odds that we face in society and use even one person to make a difference. For you see, God is on an eternal mission. And we read that Christ was sent in the fullness of time And Jesus was sent to bring that mission into our time and space and establish the kingdom to give us hope, to give us peace, to give us joy, to set the example for love. And he's on a mission in a personal way as well. And you look at this and you think, okay, out of all of the city of Jericho, the spies didn't randomly end up in Rahab's place. They were sovereignly led there to a woman who expressed faith who took care of them, who, in the midst of the culture in which she was in, still held on to faith, and a faith in a God that she didn't even really know, one that she had just seen. So when we see the traditional holiday words, we can look at them, and we can derive meaning and purpose from them. So when you pick up the Starbucks cup that says something about peace, you can be the one that has peace when the rest of the people in line look at that and say, eh, it's just a cup. There's no peace anywhere around. So what I would say is, as we wrap up is take peace in the kingdom of God and in the purposes of God through the birth of Jesus. And because of that, because we're in Christ, because we've been redeemed, God is still at work and take place in that redemptive mission. God is still at work in bringing people to new life in Him. The circumstances, the city, the civilization setting, the times, none of those things matter. What does matter is where we are looking, to whom we're looking, where we're looking, what we're looking to, 
for our fulfillment, for our peace, for our hope, for our joy, what the source of our love is. And so what I've learned from the life of Rahab is there's no one beyond the reach of God's love. There's nothing in our past that can't be redeemed. And there is no time or place in which God cannot work. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Uh, We thank you that you have been working uh, before time began. That you sent your son, Jesus Christ, to be part of our world. To bring the message, to bring the kingdom, to bring hope, to bring peace to a world that does not have any of that right now. I pray that we would take the encouragement of that, the example of Rahab, her faith so clearly demonstrated, that we would look at those same things and that we would gain faith, that we would live by faith. I pray that we would show ourselves to be different, that we have a peace and a hope and a joy that others in this world may not even understand during these tumultuous times. I pray that you'd help each of us to walk out of here different and with a better view of you than when we came in. In Jesus' name, amen.